Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is modernizing MRO using AI with my friend Paul Noble. Paul is the founder of Verison, a company that is simplifying material management. MRO, that's capital M, capital R, capital O, stands for Maintenance, Repair, and Operations. It's the lifeblood of the supply chain, the stuff that keeps the supply chains running. And it's not easy to manage. So check out my conversation with Paul because he and his team have a better way of managing MRO. So how's it going, Paul? It's going great, Joe. Thanks for having me and uh, looking forward to the conversation. I'm looking forward to it too. You can explain to everybody what the hell is MRO. But first, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Yeah, so I am Paul Noble, founder of Verison. And uh, we're a supply chain intelligence company that helps large global organizations and their supply base understand the materials that they use across their global networks and help drive inventory, procurement, and risk management solutions for them. Excellent. Excellent. I hear supply chain intelligence. I hear that a lot. I know you do too. So... When you say supply chain intelligence, and I know we're talking about MRO, so explain first what is MRO and then explain how you're using supply chain intelligence to make it better. Certainly. MRO is an important but often overlooked portion of supply chain. It stands for maintenance repair operations. In the airline industry, it's maintenance repair overhaul. So this is every part Um, or material that an organization needs to keep their assets up and running and make sure they're producing product, shipping product, and and that everyone's safe doing so. You know, pick a Fortune 500 organization. They sit on hundreds, if not billions of dollars of inventory across their global network, just in case a line goes down and they need to replace that motor or they need to replace that bearing. And so what we do is we've developed an intelligent uh, platform that they can plug in to their Frankenstein of ERP and EAM systems and overcome the data challenge and understand this is what I need by material, by plant, across my network, and what I can do to share with my suppliers to extend my network for those materials. Yep. I'm from the automotive space originally. And when I was working in engineering and supply chain, we would talk about MRO, again, maintenance, repair, and operations. That's typically something you're buying for a plant. And it's so we would look at purchasing and say purchasing has two general functions that they buy. One, they buy MRO, and the other side is they're buying production stuff. So if it's production stuff, it's a bracket, it's an instrument panel, it's seats, it's engine parts, it's all that stuff that is um, uh, designed by the company. MRO is the other stuff, which is might be um, the conveyor belts. They need to be replaced on a regular basis. And not just at one plant, at all your plants. Ra- rags. 
uh, specialized rags, chemicals that you use to clean equipment, oils, dozens and millions of things that have to be bought. And traditionally, wrong way to say it, when I started my career 30 some years ago, if you were in that assembly plant, you tended to buy stuff direct from whatever you needed. So you said, we buy conveyor belts from XYZ conveyor maintenance down the street. And every one of these plants, you might have 20 plants and they're all buying differently. And by the way, at that time, we didn't necessarily standardize production equipment across assembly plants. So it just happened that way. So when purchasing got involved in the 90s and purchasing started saying, hey, this is madness. We can't have engineering and manufacturing running roughshod over our spend here. We got to a place where you had purchasing say, wouldn't it be a good idea if we bought the same rags for all 20 of our plants? And I know immediately what was heard was, we can't do that. We need our specialized rag to wipe down our equipment. And by the way, sometimes that was a legitimate thing. In many cases, it was not. It took a long time, and I don't think it's necessarily going to be a battle that ever ends soon. But for a long time, it was like manufacturing and also distribution centers, whatever you're buying for, really resisted that. And sometimes for good reason, but sometimes it was just not wanting to hear from corporate. Am I right <laughs> to say that? <laughs> it's always... no. It, perfect tee up of the scenarios that everyone deals with. And so as we, as we look at this issue when we were founding the company and as we continue to work with our customers, their suppliers and partners that collectively try to wrap their arms around it, there is a data element, right? And we've developed technology that can overcome that data problem. So you can trust inventory procurement and risk outcome recommendations. You can search easily. You can work across function. There's a big, and what you're touching on is really a human element where I don't trust the data or you didn't know this. And so if procurement goes and you know negotiates this rock solid contract with Granger for all 100 of the facilities, you'll see a low execution of that or a slow execution of that because you're going to get pushback from operations because they'll threaten hey, that introduces risk. If I have to change suppliers or change manufacturers of that part or rag or whatever it is, there's a risk that we might go down on the line. And that is the doomsday scenario, downtime. And so to collectively with data and those human elements, like what is the data telling us without having to clean it or categorize it to make an inventory, a spend and a risk recommendation that people can review and trust and put their name on so you can actually go execute it. And it's that human element, even more so than the really cool technology that we've developed to read the data in its natural language, is getting people from procurement and operations to agree, even though they've been traditionally misaligned. And that's really a cool element of AI as well, where we can transfer that knowledge from experts. We can make the system smarter without people having to enter all this information and create more data problems and more data disconnected. So I want to switch gears with you, Paul, 
tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And give us some career highlights before you founded Verison. Yeah, so I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, lived most of my youth, um, or lived all of my youth there. And then I went to school for undergraduate at uh, Lincoln Memorial University, which is a small school in Northeast Tennessee, and uh, jokingly referred to as the Harvard of the Cumberland Gap, as it's often known. (laughs) Great school, played basketball there. Oh, wow. Great prepared prepared me well for when I left and moved back to Cleveland and started my career with the Sherwin-Williams Company, who many people know from their 4,000 plus stores that sell paint from a retail perspective and commercial perspective. And so I started my career there. It was a great place to learn and grow and get exposed to complex supply chains internally, externally, how things worked. And then I went most of my time with them was actually in a, the industrial distribution business unit that I started and we went out and we sold chemicals and adhesives, a lot of things that people don't associate. And I was crawling through hundreds of cribs, working with all sorts of distributors, and it just exposed me to the problem that we solve today. And about 10 years ago, I had a great opportunity to move to Atlanta to run our Eastern U.S. business, which really, again compounded the manual inefficiencies, the data inefficiencies, and how it, again, essentially handcuffed organizations from what do I need, where do I need it in terms of usage, and handcuffed suppliers of where do my customers need things so I can get it to them more effectively. And that's when we, being in Atlanta, refer to that, refer to Atlanta as a supply chain city or supply chain technology capital. There's just so many great technologies here, great place to start a business. So we linked up with Georgia Tech and said, all right, we know that there's these big business problems and it's really affecting, there's a lot of waste, a lot of uncertainty, and it you know it just really challenges this part of the industry. And we think that there's a better way to allow them to understand what they need so that they can drive the outcomes that they desire. And so that's how we knew the business problem and picked the right technology, which is artificial intelligence and machine learning, using natural language processing and deep learning neural networks to be able to overcome this data problem. Because it's really, it's a trust exercise. No organization trusts their data, whether it's materials data or you know, shipping data and things of that nature. And so they're, they're a little hesitant in terms of how they adopt and what capacity they adopt working capital strategies and procurement strategies and risk strategies. So all these steps and all these silos and pitfalls of systems working together, processes working together and people working together, we overcome that. And we built a, a solution that organizations can adopt and plug in so that they can, here's what the data, you know, we can tell them, here's what the data is telling us. Here's an opportunity that people can agree or disagree with and transfer that knowledge to the system. And you can actually go execute it at scale. And we've had great, great success with a lot of household name brands in doing this across their North American and now global supply chains since going to market just over three years ago. Very nice. Very nice. By the way, you were introduced to me by Anya 
please say her last name. <laughs> Scoma. I, I always butcher it. Hold on one second. Mysterious <laughs> doesn't write. Uh, we have to get you an American name. <laughs> I know you're an American through and through, but we need an Hold American on. name now. See, yeah. like Paul Noble, I can do that. I can introduce your name. <laughs> Call Anya. Ah, it usually says calling on Shormong Makoba or something. I'll get it for you. I'll give you the phonetics. And her, she's at Porter Logic, which she's a co-founder, and uh, she's great. And she's from Atlanta area too. And I joke about it, but it is no joke. I think you said you're Atlanta being one of the supply chain capitals of supply chain technology capitals. She's down there, but one third of my audience is in Georgia. The other third is in Texas, and the rest. The other, the final third is in the rest of the, in the rest of the world. It just feels like it's become the place to be. It is in the, the Department of Economic Development, Georgia Tech, current administration's Build Back Better program has so many resources focused in Georgia, which just, again, this is, it's so early in technology. Right across the square here is another billion dollar supply chain startup stored. I was doing a lot of cool Oh things. yeah, I've had Sean on the podcast. Yeah, there's, yeah, we could- Sean Henry from Stored. Correct, yeah. And so just feel fortunate to be able to have time, found my way to Atlanta, had the opportunity to see the problem, experience the problem, and go find the right partners to go build us a great solution that we're excited about, our customers and our partners are excited about too. Yep. And it's not hard to convince us Northerners to move down to Georgia, especially if you get them to go down in February. Now, going down today- You'd be like, no, give me back to Cleveland. I know what humidity is. That's what Cleveland and Detroit have. (laughs) Down in Georgia. I was just in, I was at TMSA, loved it. And it was in Savannah, not Savannah. Yeah, it was in Savannah. And loved it there. It was wonderful, but it is humid. (laughs) But it's funny, we go up to Cleveland a handful of times a year. Oh, sorry, my like computer shut down for some reason. When I go up to uh, Cleveland a few times a year in the summer, specifically, oh, it's so humid. I'm like, oh, this is a great break from the humidity. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and, and very true. It, it, it gets hot and humid in the north, in the Midwest, in the Northeast, but a little different down there. And you guys, you've experienced the snow. So when people are complaining in February down in there, whatever they complain about, you're like, ugh. We live in paradise. Yeah. I didn't miss that. That was the first thing that I said. This isn't too bad. I think I might like to stay here more than a couple. So I'm going to. I want to give you my my MRO analogy here. So when I was still selling logistics services, I remember we won a, a biz, some business, and it was they had 30 locations, a whole bunch of distributors all around the country, and. The new general manager got there, and he says, "Oh yeah, we've got to do a better job on our LTL spend." So can you help us? And we're like, of course we can. That's what we do. And, but we need all your volume. We need your all 30 locations to be under one spend. And what they had previously was each one of those locations buying whatever they wanted. And it worked. But this often happens when you acquire. They were doing lots of acquisitions. We got that business. And I remember the new general manager was excited. We told him we're going to save you all this money. And then we had a a schedule that we all agreed to. We were going to train everybody, get them to log in so they could all start using us for their LTL shipments. And I would say the first 
20 locations just came on board. They got their look that we gave them their ID. We explained the, the options, the, the whole thing. It worked very nicely. The last 10 locations, the sticklers, they were like, eh, yeah. And so I would call and say, hi, um, Paul, I'd like to introduce myself again. Yeah, I know who you are. I go, yeah, but uh, we're supposed to be moving your freight this week. He says, no, I, I told corporate we aren't doing that. <laughs> Yeah, but the only way all the locations are going to save money, the company is going to save money, is it? Yeah, but we have specialized needs. And they, I was like, whatever specialized needs, we'll give it to you. We fought with those guys. And by the way, finally, that general manager who was a character, basically, he was like threatening them, not with getting fired, but I'm going to come down, I'm going to kick your ass. I'm like, oh, okay. But it, but it worked. And we got all 30 locations on board and there was a big savings. Even more than the savings, though, we all of a sudden have KPIs where we can say how much we're spending with all the LTL cares, who's doing a good job for us, who's not doing a what other cares should we get involved. We could start having a strategic discussion about that spend. Yeah. Did we struggle to get the last 10 on? Yeah. And there was a lot of that said, I'm used to doing it this way. I don't have time for this hassle. Others, I think that was their guy who gave him tickets to a concert or bought him pizza every two weeks. I don't know what the reasons were, but we've always had that struggle. When you look at purchasing, purchasing's job is to buy for these locations. They're not the boss necessarily, but they are the ones who are responsible for the spend. And again, when we look at the spend, one easy way to look at it is there's MRO spend and then there's production spend. MRO is very important and it's an easy, you know, I always say it. It's a simple way. It's never easy. It's a simple way to save money if you can get some volume discounts. And the only way you get that is somebody has to be in charge. You have to let purchasing, you have to empower them to go get that savings. So anybody listening here who's in logistics and says, why should I care about MRO? First off, you're moving a ton of MRO. There's a lot of it to move. But secondly, they're in the same business we're in, which is aggregating volume. Yeah. And it's, and it, again, everyone's beholden that data is a trust exercise. The reason there's probably somebody in that plan manager, the individual you were working with that those last 10 plants where they got burned once and they ran something because they were trying to buy from the corporate contracts so they say never again and they harbor this kind of fear of messing up the faux move of carry three more extra bearings even though i probably don't need them because if i shut down the line or i don't don't enable that shipper to pick up the, the load that costs us 50 grand so what's the but then all that stuff adds up over time and it goes obsolete and it gets wasteful and it just you keep hiding it in shadow accounting and you never really have a great picture. So that's why we attacked it. We attacked the problem on the human side of we can make great recommendations, but it's not a black box. Here's why. And tell us if you disagree and it's okay if you disagree and don't want to do it because at least you made a decision. And now we know what's happened in the past and now we can predict the future and where should you buy those things? These 10 things are really one. Let's remove this uncertainty um, and human entry of data and just be able to look out to your supply chain and know what you need, run hub and spoke models, virtual models, scenarios, and just, again, a lot of complexity, 
very much simplified. Yep. I want to take a quick time out to tell you, you can now listen to the logistics of logistics on Wreaths Across America Radio. I'll put a link in the show notes. Wreaths Across America provides informational, inspiring content about members of the U.S. Armed Forces, their families, and military veterans. Their mission is to remember, honor, and teach. Wreaths Across America succeeds because of the generous support of the trucking community. Take a listen and please consider volunteering. So getting back to it, one of my last automotive projects, I was not working on the Liberty project. That was the the Jeep Liberty, but I was adjacent to them. So I was aware of what they were up to. I was in program management, doing some work at Chrysler. And I remember they their program management team came out. Again, this isn't on the MRO side, it's on the production side, but same idea. Their program management came out and said, when we launch this car, we're going to build it at this plant. I think it's down in Ohio, Toledo. And when we do, we're going to have, forget powertrain, that's a little different, but we're going to have three fasteners, small, medium, large. And and we're going to agree to what those fasteners are, and we're going to use them across the board. Now, Keep in mind, the average car ends with dozens and dozens of specialized fasteners because every engineer comes up with them. But the problem is, once you launch production, somebody's buying all of those fasteners. And one day you might find yourself, hey, we're short of XYZ fastener. Better to say we buy three kinds and we always have them on hand. Now, they ultimately did end up with more fasteners, but... Basically, there was an agreement. You had to come to the management team and explain why small, medium, or large didn't work for you. Now, there are a need for specialized fasteners, but the fact that they had that sort of rigor to try and keep down the part count was impressive. And I'm sure that's many years ago. I'm sure they're doing an even better job. And that's on the production side. But on the MRO side, again, maintenance, repair, and operations, that's always the job is... How do we get this so there's less risk, ideally less part numbers, <laughs> less hassle. And if you could get to the place where you say, we have got the, our arms around this, we fully understand it, we're never going to be short parts. And never being short doesn't mean we have enormous inventory counts either. <laughs> right? no, no, it's just having that that insight or that visibility to where things are more than Inventory in general is an insurance policy. MRO is even more so of an insurance policy because the parts and the materials potentially move so slow, right? You may have a critical motor that you may not use for two years, but when you need to use it, you need it. And so that's really what we're trying to go to organizations and say is, hey, let's cut down this insurance policy. You're paying $50 million more per year than you should be. So by subscribe to our service, you're going to lower your working capital number. You're going to balance it with spend and you're going to balance the risk. So you can continue to go down across your network and, and trust it without introducing new risk. And it's that balance point that we call material truth here internally is that's that perfect balance of capital and risk. And it's going to go up and down depending on what's going on in your industry and in the economy and the, in the world. But that's the point you want to find and sustain without ebbs and flows. And by the way, often inventory carrying costs are higher than transportation costs. So we get in this mode of how do I save on transportation? How do I save? And you're cutting 
beyond the fat to the muscle, to the bone on transportation costs. And meanwhile, being fat and happy on the inventory stuff. And I mentioned to you and Josh, before we hit record, that we oftentimes build stuff. We did, we design it, we pay for all the materials, build it, and it never gets to the end customer. It dies in the inventory somewhere. Anyone who's walked through an old assembly plant or through new assembly plant for that matter, who's walked through a warehouse, we know stuff gets made and never sold. So having in, in some insights on where we're, what we're buying and where it's at and how it's actually being used is sustainability goals. If you have sustainability goals and you aren't looking at your inventory, you haven't gotten very far in the journey because from my perspective, we can't save a lot of money on the transportation. We can't save a lot on the environmental stuff on the transportation. Stuff has to move. But if we could stop with the throwing out of stuff that we bought five years ago and now it's obsolete, that would be helpful. So just to give us a sense for what you guys do, why don't you walk us through like a case study? You don't have to mention any names, but walk us through why does somebody call you? What is the big problem when they finally go, yeah, I'm going to call that Paul Noble character and see what he can do for me? <laughs> So right now, everyone's environment is very similar right now. So with the economy, whether regardless of your vertical, you have working capital constraints. You have, so you have too much inventory. You're trying to find money any way you can. Inventory is a great spot, whether it's direct materials or MRO and indirect materials. And usually there's a, we've seen several of them in our customer base and then know about more of we have to cut a billion dollars out across the business in the next 18 months. Edict from the CEO, CFO, board, whatever. So working capital constraints, let's free up some money. Also, during the last couple of years, we had to buy everything from everyone we had to. So we've created a long tail of spend in our sourcing and procurement uh, function. So how can we reduce what we're inventorying and buying and buy it from the right partners that we have good contracts with and that we've committed to and eliminate more of that rogue spend. And then lastly, labor, right? So labor is hard to come by, especially when you're talking plant floor, trucking, storerooms, whatever. So you got to do more with less and you have to augment people so they're not mistrusting data, spending too much time analyzing and going from system to system and like that swivel chair thing. So what we do recently with a global beverage manufacturer, we started in North America. They'd been trying for five to 10 years to wrap their arms around, all right, how can we centralize these decisions so that not everyone's making their decisions? And how do we actually go not only find opportunities, but go execute opportunities? And they're having a tough time, like everyone, because of the systems, process, and people. And we connected with them. We started working in North America. And we started approaching this by, again, first getting, what does the data tell us? How are we getting people to put their name on it? You can change then this maximum from 10 to 5. You're using these 10 things that really are the same thing because people have been naming them at different plants and circumventing your processes. So if we know that you have a ton of duplication in your 500,000 materials you use, you should change your inventory strategy, buy material and buy plant. And you can also do that using less resources internally. And you can do it 10 times. 
faster. And we were able to achieve that. So what took them five to seven years with very low results with a team of about seven people in less than a year, we were able to really move the needle, look at every material, every plant across North America with two resources and become really their system of routine. And that success had them look at, all right, we're doing this everywhere. If we can have North America work with South America, work with Africa and Europe and get a global view, which every organization I think has a one XYZ company initiative to act as one, whether you grow through M&A or you just want better visibility, that's what we're able to achieve. And we do it with food and beverage customers because of their system complexity and brand differentiation. We do it with packaging and other CPGs really well, utilities very well, heavy equipment manufacturers. So really this vertical agnostic, system agnostic approach can go find 20, 30% working capital, get people to put, put their name on it, drive spend, and then go execute it to the bottom line. And we take, it, take them through that whole journey. And then that just lays a foundation that goes, all right, now that we know, how about we automate the plant floor and put those things in at better control in vending machines. So we're like, we're looking at all these different aspects to just have a specific and scalable strategy that can transform the way that organizations are managing MRO. And then we're working with the best suppliers from a national and international perspective, as well as down to independents. How do they receive data? How can they take an RFP and RFQ from a prospect or a customer to implement and serve faster, right? So if I know what I need to get it still, so I can now trade that with my partners, we're on the same page finally, which everyone knows that's been in supply chain, how difficult that is um, at the scale of large organizations. Yep. So you mentioned the term indirect versus direct. What is indirect materials versus direct? direct explain that yeah simply indirect is everything you need to keep plants up and running keep the company up and running so it can go from mru's a, a portion of direct that's also services right labor services and computers and pens and all that all that stuff anything that doesn't touch the product is indirect anything direct materials whether it's a material or a raw material things that go into the product those are direct materials and then you have finished goods right so we are We've built this experience for indirect and MRO that we're going to continue to lean into. And then we're looking at process manu manufacturers. A lot of our current customers, have, you know, how do we look at direct materials that act like MRO? How can we keep going up cycle because of the way we've been able to really bring people together and set goals and blow them out of the water, really, and, and create strong, scalable partnerships? So when I was still in automotive, I did a lot of value stream mapping and um, I was a, a lean guy. And yeah. um, so we would do these workshops and we would save a ton of money. And a lot of the money that we saved was in inventory. And when you save inventory, better rather than me explain, I'll let an expert explain to some, explain how that money hits that bottom line. Uh, it's so significant when people talk about, oh, I want to save money on logistics costs. I always think, yeah, go ahead, save money on logistics costs if you can. But I know most people who have materials 
could save a lot more money just by managing their inventory properly. So talk about when somebody starts carrying the proper amount of inventory, which is usually less. And by the way, since COVID, I get why. We bought <laughs> that extra inventory because we didn't know that we could get more. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it, was, it was completely to de-risk. And because you know, most organizations didn't have the trust of their people or a solution intelligence like ours, they had to go, all right, boost inventory, get everything from everywhere, right? That's why the tail got longer and inventory bloated. And so what you need to, to determine is, all right, what do we truly need? Reset min-max levels, and you'll start burning down or reallocating to other facilities that need it and redistribution, and you'll get that burn down over time. But you, when you set those min-max levels or reorder points, however, whatever language you speak, what you'll do is also you'll immediately realize cost avoidance because then you'll start streamlining pricing. You'll start buying less so you don't reorder to the old maximum. You go to the new one that's optimized. And so it's a combination of those savings. It's a combination of a bunch of different soft costs and pricing optimization that we surface that inherently lowers risk while executing those. So that's why we always talk about the balance because if you don't have that balance, you have exactly what we had. Handcuffed by data, boost inventories, boost the tail, and then just try to get a project to get it back to some semblance there was before it bloats again for the next thing, right? You keep saying long tail. What does that mean? The long tail that uh, I reference is when people reference tail spend, you look at the organizations buy from typically hundreds, if not thousands of vendors. And if you look at the spend analysis, like most things, they get 80% of those products from 20% of those vendors. So there's a lot of duplication of parts, a lot of duplication of materials and vendors that you can streamline and say, I buy these 10 things from five different vendors, but it's the same thing. I should buy it from one. You've just eliminated nine vendors from the long tail of vendors. So one of your jobs is to reduce that long tail. And I wouldn't say it's your top priority, but so let me ask this. How do you guys get paid? Are you guys a software or are you a service? Explain. Yeah, we are software as a service. So SaaS um, is a you know commonly used term. Salesforce is a SaaS company. A lot more organizations work on subscription. So what we do is if a company hired us for a project, we'd probably charge them you know, a couple million dollars. They would realize... 10, 20, 30, $40 million of value. And then we'd be done until they needed us again. That's how a lot of supply chain has worked. But we, what we do is we've invested, we've taken venture capital money to be able to build this really great solution so that they can plug it in. We can charge them a more reasonable yearly subscription and offer them different capabilities or a menu of options that can help support so that they just get great ROIs. But we're always there we're always looking at the data in different scenarios and they can have a much lower subscription and get a very configurable technology for their business so they can drive their business outcomes. I'm not just saying this because you're on my podcast, but my sense is that I don't know what you guys charge, nor do, should we even talk about it. But my sense is if you you work mostly with Fortune 1000 companies, I got to think that you save way more than you get paid within months in the first quarter. Yeah. It's done. 
save more money than they're ever going to pay you. I know you'd like to raise your price based on that, but they're going to, in the first quarter of using your system, I guarantee if they're fortune 1000, there's that much money saved. Am I right? It's substantial. Yeah. And we typically are going in and part of what we've built is, Hey, let's go find what the data is telling us. Right. So let's get your data out. We already removed 12 to 18 months of a data cleanse project, data preparation, categorization. We removed all of that. So we're already 12 to 18 months ahead of anything out that you would traditionally use. And then within 60 to 90 days, every material across 10 plants, 20 plants. And so when you get to that point, we unlock that within 90 days and people start executing. So we're already getting through and making those decisions so we can do exactly what we talked about, which was burn down, start burning down, start reallocating. When you say burn down, that means use the inventory up. And so if I have have 10,000 of those rags and I really shouldn't have 10,000 in inventory, I should have 1,000 in inventory. Burn down means I'm going to order a few of those rags and maybe get to the point where I say, I have one rag that across all my locations now. And love it. That right balance. I got to that point and now I can buy appropriately so I don't go back to that place. Yeah, exactly. And I think another way, again, if people who are trying to get their head around this, think about your pantry or your kitchen. When you go and you go, hey, I'm going to eat these beans. Man, they they got dust on them. And then the back here. Am I? Was it- they don't go bad, I don't think. But if they did go bad, this one would be bad by now. You don't want to eat it. If I got to take that, if I got to rinse it off in the sink, I ain't eating it. I'm throwing it out. We oftentimes do that in our plants. We have, we say, oh yeah, this, I have to be service parts. I have to keep them. Okay. I get it. You've got all these stuff, but we also know that after a while that stuff's obsolete and um, it, it, it's real easy to keep buying it. And I think these things go on autopilot sometimes. And you go, we've been working with that company for 40 years and we buy this and it sits on our shelf. And maybe you shouldn't have been buying it from them because you had somebody else who was providing 95% of that volume for the last 40 years. It's always like, what will happen is you do, and if you don't optimize appropriately, what will happen is there's a lot of shadow accounting, especially in MRO where you go, all right, time to write it off after a year because we can't control it. So let's write it off get it off the book so we don't have over a three-year period a, a bigger problem. And you just restart the problem again. And all these different angles have been chasing this problem forever. And so what we've been able to do is simplify it, eliminate the blocker of data, unify the human pe- the human element of getting people to put their name on things. And that foundation allows us to surface the next thing, surface the next thing as we develop our platform and give the right idea for everyone so they can go realize that savings and we can walk them through what uh, what is the data unverified? What if people put their name on and you should expect to see hit the PL and what is actually look at that very transparent journey that is has been unachievable in years past and over the past couple of decades. And you are gonna realize ROIs in thousands of percentage. And we've been always asked, and why don't you take a percentage? And we don't want to introduce that friction, right? We want you to realize as much as you can, as quickly as you can, and then get to a point where we help you maintain and sustain that balance for that business unit or region and take it to your other global regions and really start 
making, using technology the way it should, should be used to inform, learn, and go execute. Yeah. I want to take a quick time out to tell you about my friends over at Green Screens. That's greenscreens.ai. Green Screens is a dynamic pricing technology for the truckload spot market that delivers buy and sell side market intelligence to help brokers and 3PLs grow and protect their margins. Freight brokers and 3PLs using green screens gain the following advantages. Faster pricing for both buy side and sell side transactions. Pricing that is more accurate and more likely to win profitable business. Guys, dynamic pricing is the next killer app. Hundreds of freight brokers are already using it because it enables them to develop faster, more accurate quotes. This is the time. Check out Green Screens in the show notes, greenscreens.ai. So getting back to it, you mentioned taking a percentage. So you could go to a company and say, I'm going to save you some money and yeah. I want you to give me, I bet if you said, give me 20% of what you saved, you guys would make more money than you currently do yeah. as software as a service. I always say the problem with that model, and I've experienced this on the legal front, is the problem is if you come in my house, Paul, and you go, yeah, I was able to save $100 million, and now Joe's got to write us a check for $20 million. The problem I have is <laughs> if I've had that job for a while, I have to explain to my boss that, that, that why I had this fat and happy system and why I'm writing... Paul a check for $20 million. Now all of a sudden I look like I haven't been doing my job. So what do companies do? They're like, we're doing that anyway. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. You, you yeah. didn't save us that money. That was another initiative because I can't tell the boss that I need. And by the way, there's transportation companies that get into the same trick bag. It's hard because no one wants to admit, but in inventory, I remember when I was still doing in automotive, we would always want more money. It'd be nice if we could hire a full-time guy to do this. If you wanted to go find that money, it was in your inventory. It is huge money. I, I think I've overstated that point, but it is. And it's we didn't want to introduce the friction of oh, what did Verison do versus what we did on our own anyway? You know, and things of that nature. So we go, hey. We are so confident because every time an organization has used us and we've been at the same side of the table and we've rolled this out, it's been wildly successful. We're so confident. We're not going to take the savings. We're not going to take the optimization. You can keep that. We're going to guarantee it, which most software doesn't do. And we'll happy to establish goals that just say, all right, now let's go on, unlock the next thing, unlock the next thing, unlock the next thing. Yep. So we didn't talk too much about AI. So we're the topic being modern, modernizing MRO, which is maintenance, repair, and operations using AI. So I know we, you get, help us get a handle on the data. Now, what is, how does AI work in once I have all that data? So AI is the mechanism of how we do all these things, because we often are talking to organizations and we say, hey, you got this problem, we got this solution, and we can do it this quickly. And they go, I don't believe you. This is, like, we've been trying to do this forever. So when we looked at the problem, we saw, you know, it really stemmed back to the data issue. So if we can uh, overcome the data issue, we can start driving these business outcomes we've been talking about over the last 20 minutes or so at scale and, and really realize that because that's what people care about. They don't care that we're using AI to do it, but 
How do you do it? We've developed specific technology using AI to do so. And so how we use AI is first for the data side. So we've developed uh, these complex deep learning models that regardless of how a person is named apart, so I call it this, you call it that, they call it this, you know, it could be a thousand different representations of a product. We can go identify that confidence and say, these hundred things are really the same thing, which inherently changes your inventory, changes your procurement strategy. So that's the first way we do it by reading that. And we've created, you know, a material graph of, we just understand all those materials in the space and doesn't matter how you name them or how dirty or incomplete it is really. And then secondarily, once we present it to a person, whether it's an operations person, storeroom, engineer, or a procurement individual, they can work together and they can start saying, hey, I agree with this one. Perfect. Let's go do it. But there's something you're missing here that I knew that I didn't put in the system, right? And there's a lot of that. We, like Greater than 50% of the information that goes into a decision lives outside of the system. So we created feedback loops that say, disagree with it, but just tell us why. So we can transfer the knowledge from Joe or Jane that's been working the plant floor maintenance for 30 years and just knows it so that when they win the lottery or they retire, that they, that knowledge doesn't walk out the door. And then you have a new young professional coming in that goes, wait a minute, I don't know anything about this. And you introduce more risk. So part of it is those models working behind the scenes together to then say, all right, now what do you need? What's the next recommendation? What has changed every time we pull data out of SAP or Maximo, whatever system you use, that element gives a lift, saves time, and just builds trust, right? And that's why we have trust all over our product names and in our, the name of the brand and the company is for those reasons. And that's where we're continuing to lean into how can AI augment humans, eliminate human downtime, asset downtime, and just really drive a scalable solution. And we're really excited about the new focus on AI because it's overcoming a lot of pre-wired, tenured individuals within supply chain that are wired to be like, no, we need better data to do those things. And we're like, no, you don't. Let us show you. And that's that's been really exciting to educate and also work with some of the best companies and brands in the world to help them transform already very mature supply chains. Yep. And I will say, you mentioned dirty data. Lots of people will listen to my podcast during transportation logistics and they'll say, my TMS has this. And I've pulled stuff from countless TMS systems. Usually it's the, you mentioned the long tail. You look at the first, if I, I downloaded a thousand, 900 makes sense. A hundred have something wrong with them. Either the price isn't on there or the pickup and delivery location isn't right or is abbreviated in a way that's different. And you always, so I think one of the things that values you guys bring is there's, that needs to be some best practices around how you, how you name stuff. And so if it's, if I'm calling them garbanzo beans and you're calling them cheap beans, <laughs> they're the same thing. <laughs> right. The system doesn't know that. Today. Right. And so if we could somehow teach uh, the systems, but I think that what you're bringing is you're saying, we're going to help you clean up that dirty data. So you stop having something called 
XYZ valve when it's just everyone else is calling it the one, two, three valve, right? And, And this is long overdue. And again, we all have tons of data. And for a long time, we thought data was the answer, but now we're realizing data is typically backwards looking. Now we need to use the AI. So having business intelligence is great. Having that business intelligence put into a machine learning model is even better because it's going to tell me what the future is doing as opposed to what happened in the rearview mirror. Certainly. Yeah. That's uh, yeah, nail on the head. Um, you shouldn't be like, know that you have outcomes in your business you want to drive and either need to delay it 12 to 18 months to get perfect data because it's never going to happen. The decades have proven that everyone's search for perfect data is trying to find world peace. And so that's where we come in and say, your data in its current state, we can go focus on the right low-hanging fruit to drive the business outcomes while we're slowly gaining further understanding of what that data needs to be and eliminating a lot of the actions of why people can't find things in their current system and they create duplicates and they rename things appropriately. Humans are always going to circumvent those rules. And so we act as a governor there. Yep. Yep. I can tell you when I was in product development, we would be develop parts car for cars. And so you have in a bill of material. And at some point, always somewhere in that, you'll have a product cost, you'll have an investment cost. And then somebody, usually finance, accounting, along with VPs of engineering will say, Hey guys, we need you to knock that price down, that investment down this much and the cost price down this much. And everybody who's in engineering knows this is coming. You know it. So if you say, we've been working our ass off and we got this down to the part cost is $1,000 for our system. They're like, yeah, that good job there, Joe. Good job, Paul. Could you just get it down to 950 as if you weren't trying to do that already? And so- Friends of mine, I won't mention the company, Figo, we put a flux capacitor as one of the parts into the system. And so then they put up, by the way, flux capacitor is what they used on the DeLorean for Back to the Future. It's not a real part, but they put that in the engineering bill of material. And then when that time came and they said, you need to save $18 or whatever it was, they're like, all right, we'll go back to the drawing board. They took the flux capacitor out of the engineering material. You were able to engineer a way that you don't need 1.21 gigawatts of uh, no. disappointed. But <laughs> That's anyway, so right. who's the sweet spot for Verison? Yeah, and again, we work mainly with large organizations, 10 plants or more, food and beverage, pulp paper packaging and others, and chemicals. And then oil, gas, and energy are really three established verticals where we've had a lot of success, but also really asset-intensive organizations, 10 plants or more, and often a billion or two more or more in revenue is where we've had success to date, Um, but really vertical and system agnostic. We're seeing a lot more demand from those manufacturers. And then we also work with a lot of the top 50 industrial distributors with that new supplier experience and also collaborating with shared customers today. Wait, what What kind of companies are the second one? Distribu- uh, industrial distribution companies like Granger, 
HD supply, Valen, integrated suppliers, folks that are the key suppliers for the MRO at their organizations. Got it. Got it. So what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile and a link to Verison and any other links you and Josh give me. I'll put those in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you. Paul Noble, I like to interview smart, interesting people like you who are killing it in the space. Who else should I interview? All right. I know we, we talked a little bit about it. Uh, the three, three names come to mind. You just want me to do one. Three is good. Okay. So first one that comes to mind is Josh Bauk. Josh is formerly president of a company called Trax, and now he's running the chief partnership officer for them. So you may have heard Track. They do freight audit. Good finger on the pulse in the system. Great guy. Uh, friend of Verison. Secondly, Greg White, who's founder of Blue Ridge Software. Very well-known quadrant-leading planning solution in a lot of re the retail planning space. And also does work with supply chain now. And then lastly, Gaurav Candlewall, CEO of Velostix, is great mind, serial entrepreneur, doing some really cool things in the logistics and dock management and planning space. He can explain it a lot better than I can, but those three really jump out that could have great conversations and help the audience learn more about different parts of the supply chain. Excellent. Excellent. So Please introduce me if you got the email addresses. So what conferences will we see you and the Verison team at? Yeah, so I know we took a little bit of a break. We were we were at the Promat. We were at Industrial Supply Association show. We did Gartner Supply Chain Symposium. Looking ahead, we are going to be at the Future of Distribution. It's put on by Modern Distribution Management in September. We are going to be at ProcureCon MRO, which we're hosting in Atlanta this year and looking forward to engaging with you there. And then trying to think, yeah, there's some other ones too, but those types of conferences. I'll see you at Manifest next year. I'll introduce you yeah, to Courtney. Yeah, we need to speak up at Manifest. I'll put it on the board. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I met Anya, who introduced me to you. So it's full circle. Great. Great. I, I love what you guys are doing. Again, I think MRO is one of those places that is so overlooked and it's where the money is hiding. <laughs> MRO and inventory in general is just one of those. I think we're going to, in this transportation logistics space, I think we're seeing more and more companies develop niches. And I think we're going to see a lot of the people who are today managing a lot of freight are going to say, I'm going to move upstream and help these guys do some other stuff. And I think that's going to be necessary as the technology allows us to do more with less in the over the road space. I think we'll see a lot of people move upstream into uh, the supply chains. And again, I think this is absolutely what we need to do. So much waste and so much money that we need to get our hands on. I love what you guys are doing. Just getting started. It's so unsexy. It's sexy. And I'm glad that you allowed us the opportunity to, to build some more awareness around it. So thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And thank all of you for coming on my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward.
You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.